Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, they find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only enact things within a narrow range, and that set is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, one thing that regular listeners will remember about the Overton Window is that it is not an academic political science concept. It's a fundraising concept. Uh, Joe Overton thought it up as a way to help potential donors understand how the Mackinac Center can influence public policy without holding any of the levers of power. Now, behind any big social movement, there are going to be a lot of people who give their wealth for the mission. And there are a lot of experienced fundraisers who specialize in pitching ideas that make a difference. And I can think of no better person to talk to about this than our very own Vice President for Advancement, Jimmy Walker. Jimmy, welcome. James, it's great to be with you. Uh, let's first take a broad view. Uh, Americans give a lot. What do they get in return? You know, this is an interesting question. I in and I think for the Americans who do give a lot, it's intuitive for them, and it's almost in their genes. They they get to change the world in whatever. And I'm speaking very broadly, uh, not just people who change the world in the way that we think is positive. But for the for the donor who's giving money, they are attempting to change lives, change the course of history, uh, might be just change the course of history for one human being that they're that they're supporting through some uh, charitable cause. Or it might be changing the world for millions of people, changing the futures of millions of people through something like shifting the, the Overton window in public policy. So that seems like it would be a tough thing to get used to, uh, or, or at least to, to build the habit uh, of, of just giving and trying to keep an eye out for how you make a difference in the world. Um, what's, what's been the experience that people have with that? Yeah, certainly I think, I, I do think that some people excel in generosity by nature, um, and they tend to be really generous even at a young age, even if that generosity might be of course, limited by the resources that they have when they're younger. And there is all kinds of social science that indicates as people age and mature, they tend to give more. So uh, people in their 50s tend to give more than that's kind, 50s is usually the age where major giving starts to happen. And that's partly because people have built a career and have more wealth. It's also because a lot of their obligations to children and that kind of thing are starting to wane and then into their 60s and into their 70s and then entrepreneurs in particular continue to give uh, significant amounts of money well into their 80s and 90s and I think what I think what happens is once people start to give they realize the joy of it and I always I observed this at a very young age or very early in my career that generous people tend to be really happy people. Uh, it's almost hard to be really generous and sad at the same time because the act of giving is hopeful. So that impetus that you talked about though, like wanting to change the world, like that's an ambitious thing for anyone. 
you don't have to like we're born into the world we live we live into the world there's not like it's not a given that we would want to make a bigger difference than what we do with our family our friends or social circles so why is that a thing that resonates with people wow that's a great question um i think i think there is something innate in human nature that is moved to help others and to make an impact on the lives of other people. Um, and I think, I actually remember very early on in my career a uh, a video by the Acton Institute called The Call of the Entrepreneur, or the video of the, or the, uh, sorry, the vocation of the entrepreneur. And it really laid out that in order for an entrepreneur to be successful, they have to be other focused because their attention has to be on meeting the needs of other people. And it may also have something to do with why entrepreneurs tend to be significantly more generous than other types of uh, professionals. And part of the reason for that might be, I haven't studied the social science on this, but part of the reason for that might be this idea of being other focused. They're focused on meeting the needs of other people. So they do that in a way where they can make money from that by meeting their needs from a business standpoint. But they also tend to do that by meeting the needs of other people in ways that are charitable in, in nature that can't be monetized. Um, so I think it is this idea of there's a, and maybe it comes back to the happiness factor too, that people are actually happy when they're focused on meeting the needs of other people. And I, I think so that's I a real gonna, driver for it. Well, and that's an interesting point too, because I was gonna harass you a little bit about making a difference because like people give to symphonies, they give to art museums. Uh, you know, that's not really making a difference in the world. It's like, well, actually it is. Like you are making the world a better place by uh, filling it up with beautiful and interesting things. Yeah, and I think some of that is subjective. So there might be some things that you and I may consider as not having a big difference in the world where somebody else might think that, well, that actually does create significant change in the world. And and I think some... So I've used changing the world a few times, but I think... Sometimes it can mean just changing the world of an individual person, changing their history, changing their future. So it doesn't always have to be solving giant worldwide problems. It can be or that, state ones, or yeah, yeah, or state problems. Uh, sometimes it's actually easier to think about solving world problems than just the problems in the state. Um, but I think sometimes it can be getting one student the education that they deserve. And you know that by changing the life of that one student, you're making an impact in that person's lives. Um, as an example, I am not a big proponent uh, or a big supporter independently of animal welfare type charities. But I bet those donors who give to those causes have a real care either for the, the animal itself or the impact that that animal is likely going to make on the life of another human being. 
So even though it's not something that moves me personally, I can see how the donor who supports that could really care about it uh, and give for that reason. So let's uh, narrow in on the kind of work that we do. Uh, why do per, or what do prospective donors to the Mackinac Center want? So I think globally, we what we hear from donors frequently um, is that the Mackinac Center is their voice. Uh, as when we survey donors in large scale, they'll say, "You say the things we want to say, but can't either because." We don't have the microphone for it. We don't have the ability to influence the public, or we just don't have the information and the facts to back up what we know intuitively. And I think that's a big driver. And they really just believe in the foundational principles of our country, of personal uh, autonomy, individual freedom, uh, and the ability to be free and live your life with limited interference from the government. So that's interesting because like there are, I mean, politics is filled with, uh, uh, there, there, um, there are group lobbies, you know, like the, the chamber of commerce, the chamber of commerce exists to represent the political interests of its members. Um, you know, there are a lot of uh, the, uh, the the Michigan School Business Officers Organization represents the interest of Michigan School Business Officers, and they are not necessarily tied by something broader. Like our fun, our our donors, like they don't have that relationship with us. As in, like they're not specifically saying, you know, uh, here here's what you should think about an issue because that's what what I think about an issue. They're like, we like the ideas. We like what what you're talking. We can trust you to uh, to to be that. Why why don't donors ask for a bigger say in what we say? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because they donors tend to be attracted to us because of the principles that we hold, and they know we're not going to waver from those. So they actually know that we're not going to be influenced by uh, by them or by other donors who um, might attempt to sway us on any given issue that would be contrary to principle. So this comes up most frequently for, up for the Mackinac Center with corporate subsidies because there are a lot of entrepreneurs who tend to be free market-based on everything except government subsidies to their particular industry. And and I think the donors who do give to us really appreciate that the Mackinac Center is unwilling to bend on. For us, what would be a core principle is that the government should not be in the business of favoring one company or one industry over another. And I think they really appreciate basic that. Republican principle that uh, <laughs> a government exists to benefit the public, not anyone's private interest. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I think they I think they really appreciate we, we've had a donor say to us, yeah, I, I wouldn't expect you to. I, I would be disappointed in you if you betrayed your principle for extra money. Uh, so now, hang on, I, I, I should I should also note that we do listen a lot to donors who have good ideas on how to execute on those 
ideas that we have mm-hmm. um, or the principles that we hold. So some of our communications ideas have been developed with in concert with donors where we'll bring an idea, we'll bring a problem to solve. A lot of these folks are amazing problem solvers themselves. So we take a lot of advice, we take a lot of counsel, and some good ideas are developed through conversations that we have with donors. So you mentioned that uh, our supporters are people who share our principles. Um, how do you find people like that? So they they find us, um, and you mentioned at the beginning that uh, something along the lines of pitching them ideas or bringing ideas to them, and we do some of that, but a lot of what we do is actually listening to them and helping to find uh find and unlock the desires that they already have and want to achieve. So from a from a business standpoint of how we go about our work, we find them because they have already found us and are giving to us, or we found them through uh, the mail where we sent them a mailing that they responded to, or they've read an article in our news service, Michigan Capital Confidential. So somehow where they have found us, a lot of donors will refer their friends and say, oh, and they'll do this in countless ways. Everything from, oh, you should really meet uh, Jane and John Doe. They are amazing people. They would really share your vision and your values. And let's get together. And so we'll do really direct referrals like that to more uh, less direct and, and just general references. Oh, you should try to get to know so-and-so. Uh, when you say that listening to our donors is an important thing that we do, what do you mean? Yeah, I, I remember the first time I... So I'm going to tell you a little story to answer that question. The first time I heard about the Overton window was from Joe Lehman. And I was interviewing for the Mackinac Center. Uh, this was back in... I started in 2015, so this would have been back in 2014. And uh, one of our colleagues who can be really challenging in an interview was asking me what I was going to tell our donors about the Mackinac Center mission, which at the time I knew very little about. Um, I had followed Michigan Capital Confidential. Of course, I had read the website um, and had followed the whole think tank space as a fan for a number of years. But I had never tried to communicate to somebody else what a think tank does. And so I remember asking Joe Lehman, hey, how do you guys communicate this to donors? Because I was telling that colleague in the interview, I'm going to listen to the donors, find out what they want to achieve, and then help be a matchmaker and help them achieve that. And that's when Joe laid the Overton window uh, concept out to me in that meeting. Uh, And I think he used school choice as the example, which really hit me personally. It's it's one of the issues that I care most about. Uh, My background is in Catholic education. And of course, the Michigan Blaine amendments have a lot of anti-Catholic bias in their roots. And um, so that's a very long winded answer to your to your question. So what, uh, I guess, uh, 
you have a lot of people who share our principles, willing to uh, to give to us because they think we're a good voice and, and advocate for uh, for those principles. Um, how do they know that their money's being well spent? What kind of accountability uh, comes with uh, with their with their donations? Yeah, and we customize this. I think I think generally speaking, uh, we we get gifts of various sizes from all i mean we have thousands of donors uh who give large amounts small amounts and they i think the number one thing is they follow our work one of the things that actually makes my job relatively easier compared to other missions is we are in the news regularly for donors whether in their inbox with Michigan Capital Confidential or James, I know you're on the news a lot. Many of our colleagues are on the news. So they actually see us and see our work. Uh, we have mailings that we send that attempt. We have our magazine is called Impact. comes out six times a year. That That is a tool to communicate the impact that we're having uh, with donors. So we also will do customized reports so a lot of times what happens is a donor might be willing to give let's say somebody has given a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or even ten thousand whatever might be a relatively smaller gift for that particular donor and they might be willing to give 10 times that 20 times that or more for a particular issue that they care a lot about and if that happens, oftentimes we agree ahead of time on how we'll report, what kind of metrics they'd be looking for, what kind of results. And so foundations in particular are this way where oftentimes a foundation will want to know ahead of time, okay, here's, here's how much we're going to give. How are, you, how are you proposing to measure that? And then a lot of times we'll work together on how we're, how we're going to measure the results of their gift. Now I know it's going to be highly dependent upon exactly you know what uh, what project that we're on, but what are some of the ways that that donors care about? Uh, sorry, what are the ways that donors want our impact to be measured? So sometimes uh, that impact is uh, in the the moving of an actual policy. Um, sometimes that impact is representing a client in a lawsuit and they just they want that client's story to be heard and they want that client to have their day in court the other end of our lawsuits is it's almost always the government acting in a way that is restricting uh, a citizen's rights one of my favorite stories is about donors who came to us and they wanted us to intervene in the michigan public service commission on the utilities who are voluntarily doing things that are, well, it's the Public Service Commission that allows it, but the utilities are promote, proposing these ideas that are going to make energy less reliable and more expensive for citizens. And the reason it's one of my favorite stories is the donor said to us, and they were going to give us a, a their biggest gift that they had ever made to us, um, and it was a good size gift. And they said, we are going to lose, but we have to start making this case. 
and we have to put a stake in the ground. But they knew there was no chance of success on that day. So they, But they had a very long-term goal of starting to shift the Overton window. That if we start having our voice heard now and we make a strong case, and it's clearly the morally right case, then we're going to win. Um, and I think you haven't asked about that, but I, I think having a morally just cause is so important to raising a lot of money and getting donors to give is people really get behind causes that they see are, are morally just. And in this case, what the utilities are doing in, in using a monopoly and then, and then intentionally advocating for ideas that are going to make energy less reliable and more expensive it's just wrong. So I want you to dwell on that. I mean, it seems pretty obvious that people care about important moral things. Uh, and there's, there's, morale, there's a lot of morality in policy and politics. Uh, why is that? Uh, okay, I, I think it's because that's what wins. The moral argument is what wins. And by moral... Uh, let's let's talk for a minute about whether something you can make a morally argument a moral argument that is morally wrong, but you make that argument from a position of moral strength. So, a, as an example, let's take um, let's take school choice. So the Mackinac's position that we make very clear is this is actually a, a moral case that who should decide where a child goes to school. The Mackinac Center believes that the parent should decide. So that's the case that we make, that it's a moral case that the person who should get to decide on how and where their child is educated is the parent. Now, the proponents who are against that, who I believe are on the morally wrong side of the issue, still make a moral argument. They don't make the argument that, no, the government should get to decide. They'll make a moral argument that says uh, something about the public schools, for example. You're destroying the public schools. That's This is all about attacking public schools. So they're wrong. That's not what it's about. But nonetheless, they're making a moral argument because at the end of shifting the Overton window is all about who makes the better moral case for their ideas. Not which, unfortunately for us, it's not which idea is more moral, is more morally just. It's who makes the better argument from a moral standpoint. You mentioned that you've been with us since 2015. What's the biggest way you think you've helped shift the Overton window? Hmm. I I think donors donors have invested heavily in helping us reach the right message at the right time with the right idea. And a lot of this has changed as the world has changed and the tools with social media have become more readable, uh, or, or sorry, more accessible. 
it's made it possible like for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's not a word. Uh, <laughs> although language develops over time, James. So maybe we've also just developed a new word on this uh, podcast. But over time, it er, with the investment of new technology, it's allowed us to reach people in a way that has somewhat even the playing field. Now, now we're still at a disadvantage in countless ways, and some of our content, I believe, does get uh, moderated, especially if we have something that gets a really big hit. But it's made it more affordable for groups like the Mackinac Center to get our message out to more people because of a lot of the, the tools and then the investments that donors have made to put our we we just finished a three million dollar matching gift so six million dollars total for the frank beckman center for journalism some of that is getting our message out over the traditional airways like that uh, our show Mackinac, michigan on wjr but a lot of it is to invest in reaching people in the newer ways through social media and other channels through video and podcasts and and things yes, like that. that that work supports this podcast Thank you, Frank yes. Beckman Center for Journalism, and the work you're doing uh, to make sure there are resources for that. Um, what kind of skills do you need to do this job well? Hmm. Okay, let me think about it in terms of the people who I like to hire. Uh, I like to I like to hire people. Number one, you've got to have a large capacity for work. Uh, it's actually a, a lot of work, and it's hard work. Um, honestly, there's, I don't know how somebody does it in a typical eight to five workday. It just, I don't, it, it, it's just not that kind of job. So you've got to have a high capacity for work, a, a willingness to put in an extreme amount of effort. So I tend to like to find people who have something in their background that indicates that, whether that's college athletics, competitive debate, competitive drama, um, you've got to be a good communicator. And by that, I, I think what a lot of people sometimes mistake, at least I, is they think that you've got to be an extreme extrovert. I, I'm sure those people like that can be successful, but I think a good balance of introversion, extroversion, a really good listener, uh, because you're trying to unlock the and, and understand the desires of another person. There's a lot of research on the science of influence that uh, I think people share some of, some of those traits are natural and some people are really good at influencing other people, but some of it can be learned. So people who are willing to put in some time to, to study and research communication and influence and those kind of things I think is really important. Uh, and then courage, because for a lot of people, this is uncomfortable, uncomfortable work. You're talking about somebody else's money. For me, it's never really been uh, hard or uncomfortable because I really believe that what we're doing is changing the world. And I don't know why somebody wouldn't want to invest in it. So that particular uh, part of the work has never been a, that challenging to me, but I hear that regularly from people who will say, oh, I, I could never do that kind of work. Um, so I, I don't know if that 
answered what you're looking for. Well, let me let me narrow it down a little bit more. Um, what I've heard from you is that there, there, here's three things that I that I think are really important to doing the fundraising job well: listening, storytelling, and courage. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Yeah. How do you build those skills? Uh, okay, there there are all kinds of means of practice. We do work on developing a story. Uh, how are we going to communicate this? You don't want to come in and just share with somebody a, a smorgasbord like they're at a buffet of everything that you're doing and put it all out there. You want to frame that within a story because usually they're trying to solve a problem. And our work is all about solving problems. So the more that we can communicate a story on how we can solve the problem they're trying to solve, the better. So we do spend some time both developing that and practicing it. Listening has always come really natural to me. And sometimes something that somebody is really good at, they're not good at coaching and teaching other people. Uh, but we will say, we will spend some time working on, okay, what could we ask them that would really help us understand what their goals are or what problem it is that they're trying to solve or what they, what makes them think the way they do about any given issue. Um, and so we'll spend some time working and then everybody has to adapt that to their own personality. But, um, I think, I think, act, and then we will also do this. So as we're bringing new people on, we try to do some donor visits together. And a lot of times listening is about the visual cues that you pick up. So, uh, for example, I remember one person right as we started to get to the opportunity to make a difference on a particular project, he started shaking his knee. I'm doing it right now under the table on this podcast, imitating him. But, and I knew when he started shaking his knee, it was because he was getting really excited and he was, and he did make a big gift. But picking up on those visual cues is really important. Having a sense for when somebody has heard enough and once they've already said yes, uh, you don't need to continue to go deeper and deeper into the issue. They're, they're bought in. Now it's, okay, now they just want to make the gift and make the change happen that they're looking for. All right, so um, let's say you've got someone who's really interested in, in making a donation for, for this, this idea that we're trying to get off the ground. Uh, they make the donation, and we do the thing, and we're really successful. We, we get the victory, whatever, whatever that is. Um, how do they uh, how do how does the donor feel after that 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 actually might be dependent on the donor because i think some of them may feel uh as simple as okay good that one's done now i'm on to the next thing uh that's quite possible where uh others may want to really relish the victory for a little while and they may want to tell their friends about it uh, they may, some of them will send a congratulatory note to us about it. Uh, some of them may feel grateful. It, so I think that's highly dependent on the person. But I, 
I do know that in terms of raising money, people, they want results. They want you to tell them about the results they've had. But they're also most motivated by what com- what comes next. And I think that's because of the relationship between that we that we already talked about between hope and giving. And um, so I think for a lot of people, they're glad that you won. And then they also want to know, OK, what's next? We actually hear that quite a bit. Uh, so if we celebrate a win, which we do because uh, donors are really the one that made it happen without the money, nothing was going to move. And we'll share about the win. And a lot of times I'll get a note back that says, okay, good job. Now go get this other thing done. Or now what's next? So we hear a lot of that. How do you feel after a successful effort? I fall into the first category of people who are more excited about what's going to happen. Uh, So so for me personally, I have to be really intentional, uh, just honestly, about making sure we close some communication gaps that other people know about the win that we got. Uh, and it, it might come from, I also come from a sports background. So I remember whenever we had a, a win, it was enjoy the win tonight, come back tomorrow morning, ready to work. And so me, for me personally, that, uh, and I've got people on my team who are really good about making sure that we spend some time celebrating wins. And it comes more natural for them because that's what they're motivated by. Jim, thank you for helping us shift the Overton window. James, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, So I'm really grateful that you had me on and hopefully this can help some people. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Overton window, a podcast from the Mackinac center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinaw with a C, like the island.